Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. I am, of course, Corey Morgan. This is the weekly show on the Western Standard. I'll cover some news, news issues. I'll do some ranting. I'll talk to some guests. All that good stuff. I see some of the regulars checking in. Gary Paradoxy, Mr. Stonely, all present. Uh, yes, use that comment scroll, guys. This being live means we can interact. I mean, I won't necessarily read every comment out, but I see them all there, and uh, it helps the conversation and keeps things rolling. So by all means, use it, including you there, Scott, even if you are from up in Fort Mac. So uh, just uh, the always the reminder on that, though, keep things civil. We don't have to uh, get on each other's cases. We can debate without getting too out of hand. You know, if you really want to go nuts, go on Twitter. That's what it's for. Then you can just block each other eventually. All right, so I got a good show lined up today. We've got a Colin Craig. He's been on before. He's with SecondStreet.org, and they've got some interesting, a kind of one uh, good news piece on healthcare that they've put out, and one that's pretty concerning on healthcare. We're going to talk about those things, though, because of course healthcare is always top of mind for citizens every election. It just seems it's the the biggest issue everybody has when they're polled until somebody proposes changing anything, and then they all curl up and say, "No, no, no, we got to keep it how it is." All right, well, we should start things off with my usual rant, and I'll tell you what's got me wound up today. So, well, where do I start? Well, I know where I have to start. One of two things has happened on the the site of the former Indian Residential School in, in Kamloops, BC. So either we have one of the most horrific mass murders of children in history that has occurred there, or it's one of the most socially damaging hoaxes we've ever seen in modern memory or modern history. In either case, it's critical that excavations are carried out to confirm just what happened. It's been over two years since over 200 sites considered to be possible child's graves were identified with ground penetrating radar, also known as GPR, but no further investigation into the matter appears to have been done. Could you imagine the outrage if we never excavated uh, and investigated at the Picton Farm site when it was discovered that murders had taken place there? The allegations at the Kamloops school site are more horrific and involve several orders more victims than than Picton's acts, yet there's been no forensic follow-up. When the GPR anomalies at the school site were publicly reported in 2021, it rocked the nation and made international headlines. We had protests erupting across the country. Over 70 churches have been burned to the ground. Canadian flags were kept at half-mast for over six months, and a new national holiday was created to address the tragedy. Not to mention, of course, the government floodgates of spending and chronic apologies opened right up. Yet no further investigation was done. Now, of course, people are starting to speak up. They're saying, well, wait, what happened? Questions are being asked, and why shouldn't they be? Stories claimed that 200 children were killed and and secretly buried in an apple orchard in the 1950s and 60s. The perpetrators in that case might still be alive and on the loose. Also, shouldn't we be trying to identify these victims so the remains can be repatriated to their families? In response to the questions that people are starting to ask now, the government, though, is responding by saying it might illegalize the questions. An independent special interlocutor on unmarked graves has asked the Justice Department to illegalize what they're calling residential school denialism. And Justice Minister David Lebedi has said he's open to the idea. The person assigned to dealing with the alleged graves appears to be more concerned with shutting down discourse than actually dealing with what's happened with these graves. Now, of course, they're using the term denialism purposely to try and draw a parallel to Holocaust deniers. 
There are several reasons, though, we can't compare the questioning of the lack of investigation into alleged graves with people who question the actual existence of the Holocaust. I mean, to begin with, there were records tracking the horrific mass murder carried out during the Holocaust. The Nazis were actually horrifically meticulous record keepers when it came to that. It was known who entered those camps and who was killed. Now, residential schools kept record as well. The schools needed to do so if only to ensure they got their government transfers per child. Deaths were recorded, but there's no records of over 200 children dying and being buried in Kamloops. The Holocaust also had witnesses in the millions, actually, from the Allied forces and Russian liberators who showed up in the camps to local citizens in the areas of the camps to the survivors of the camps to the camp guards. The atrocities committed were well witnessed and corroborated. Now, while there's stories have been made of children being hung from hooks and thrown into the furnace at the Kamloops school and things such as that, claims that children were taken out in the night and forced to dig graves to bury their compatriots, but there's no corroborating witnesses to these acts. The Holocaust left millions of families seeking lost, lost, lost loved ones for decades, but there's no records of any families claiming to have had children disappear at the Kamloops residential school site. So where did these kids come from? And where were their families? Where are their families? Most importantly, encountering deniers, the Holocaust had bodies, millions of them, from pits filled with charred bones and ash to mass graves to literal piles of bodies found by liberators. At the Kamloops site, to date, not a single body has been recovered. The count is zero. GPR, it's an effective tool for finding ground disturbances, but it can't distinguish between what could be a grave or what could be an old outhouse pit. Excavations must be done. And this was stated even as part of the original report on the GPR anomalies found at the Kamloops site. In a different site, six months after the Kamloops anomalies were discovered, a GPR survey was carried out on the site of a former hospital in Edmonton, where it was alleged that indigenous victims of ill treatment were buried. The GPR identified 34 anomalies thought to be graves. Yes, everybody was rending and, and losing it there. Oh my God, here we go. It's even more. So with the supervision of indigenous elders, the anomalies were all carefully excavated over the course of several days. But no human remains were found. Not a bit. It's not unreasonable or, un, or, you know, or hateful to ask questions about something as important as the possible mass murder of children. Demanding an investigation of these alleged crimes actually is the opposite of denialism. It's outrageous we've allowed the nation to be turned upside down over the GPR anomalies while refusing to investigate further. There are some very valid reasons to question what may or may not have happened in the old apple orchard in Kamloops. Illegalizing questions won't make them stop. It's only going to convince people something's being covered up. If we want to end what's being called denialism, we need to start digging. Show us the bodies. Then we can get on with trying to find the killers and giving closure to the families. Well, that's what's got me going now, guys. I mean, it's just, it's insane. They, they, they talk about both sides of their wealth, you know. Well, we've had a mass murder. We've had uh, one of the most, these horrific things that happened. But no, 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 we can't investigate further. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. We, we do have to investigate. we got to find out just what the heck happened there. But apparently pretty soon it's going to be illegal to even ask for that. And that's very, very troubling. All right. Let's get into the newsroom and talk to our news editor, Dave Naylor, and see what else is going on out there. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Good morning or afternoon, I guess, Corey. You know what? I'm kind of surprised you showed up for work today. Oh, how so? Well, Greta Thunberg uh, has predicted today will be doomsday. I figured you and Jane would spend the last day, you know, 
letting your bees free and other stuff out in produce. Jeez, if I'd have known, I probably would have scheduled the day that way. I, I missed marking that on my calendar, I guess. Yeah, we had a story up uh, yesterday. Uh, five years ago, she predicted the world would end today. So it uh, looks, you know, I'm just looking out the window now. And, you know, there's a few hours left in the day. But uh, uh, I think she might be wrong, Corey. Well, but, uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Anyways, enough about that little idiot. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Internet is full of filth. Corey, nobody knows that more than you. But I came across something the other day that that shocked me to my very core. Um, Oi. What the hell is that? That That is my old, uh, yeah, private school pictures from Shanigan Lake School. Wow. The things you find on the internet, eh? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, I was a bit of a pain in the ass kid, so my parents outsourced it and sent me to an all-boys school to have them, uh, you know, uh, contract discipline. It was effective. My marks went up. There you go. Everything works out in the end. Uh, lots of news to tell you about, Corey. Obviously, uh, uh, we're all uh, gripped, as the entire world is, on the uh, the rescue efforts off the coast of Newfoundland for the uh, miniature submersible uh, that lost touch on Sunday as it made its way four kilometers to the uh, bottom of the, the floor. Uh, there's now five ships uh, in the area uh, and two remote-operated uh, vehicles that are searching underwater as well a, a Canadian search and rescue aircraft has heard repeated bangings, uh, what sound like bangings uh, coming uh, from, from the ocean. Uh, U.S. Coast Guard officials were very, uh, very careful today to say that they really don't know what those bangs could be. But, uh, you know, they're running out of hope, Corey. They got less than uh, 20 hours of air left. And as of this moment, if they're sitting on the bottom of the ocean floor, there's really not a rescue vehicle there uh, that has the capability to uh, to retrieve them. So, you know, we're uh, we're keeping an eye on that one for you. Uh, other stuff. Our uh, columnist Michael Wagner has, is looking at uh, whether or not Ottawa would even let Alberta leave the country if uh, if that's the way uh, things go. And I know that's a, a topic close to your heart. Uh, Bud Light sales continue to plummet. They were down 26 percent uh, in the last week alone. And this is ironic coming as uh, in the worldwide marketing uh, convention, I think it's in France somewhere, uh, Bud Light won, uh, Creative Marketer of the Year. So, uh, wow, you can, uh, you can tank an entire company and still be rewarded for it. Uh, we've got video up of Lethbridge MP uh, Thomas uh, talking about how Bill C-18 will, will undermine journalism in the country. And uh, Ty Northcott is on trial uh, up in Red Deer today for holding his No More Lockdowns rodeo uh, all those years ago. And uh, you remember, Corey, that uh, the uh, health authorities at that time were not pleased and uh, arrested and charged uh, he and his wife after that uh, that rodeo. So got uh, lots of other stuff now. Uh, uh, stuff coming this afternoon, our energy reporter, Sean Polzer, is looking at a troubling report today that, that says Russian hackers are looking to... Uh, uh, cripple the uh, Alberta energy industry. So uh, he's on top of that. And of course, we'll keep up to the minute uh, on the uh, the search for the sub, Corey, and uh, fingers crossed it goes well. Great. Yes, if we don't have enough from Ottawa attacking our energy industry, we need Russian hackers coming after it now. It's just uh, one thing after another. Exactly. I can't catch a break. All right. Well, lots on the go as always. I'll let you get back at it. And uh, thanks for the update, Dave. Thank you, Corey. All right. That is our news editor, Dave Naylor. This is when I remind you and nag you. 
This is how we pay the bills. Guys, from the Western Standard, we got all those stories. We got reporters across the country, and we are independent of all government funding, and that's because you guys take out subscriptions, and we really appreciate it. If you haven't subscribed yet, though, come on, guys. Get on there, westernstandard.news slash membership. It's $9.99 a month, $100 for a year. It helps support us, keep our reporters going, keep me going, keep our producers going, and it keeps independent media going in general. So, uh, yes, plenty of news going on with her. That, that's a submarine submersible thing. I mean, that's just the stuff of nightmares, right? You know, you don't know if they're still down there hammering on the side of that thing in terror or if perhaps they've passed or whatever. Uh, I, I, I just, uh, I guess, you know, there's, there's thrill seeking and there's adventures, but you really want to pick some of your adventures a little more carefully. It sounds more and more news is coming out about that thing too, that for all the money that went into it, this whole, uh, affair of getting down there was kind of half-assed with uh, what they built and put together. I mean, uh, clearly at this point it wasn't hundred percent reliable either way. I mean, still, you don't wish, uh, passing on anybody uh there's still some time you never know we'll hope for the best that maybe that, that this thing will be uh located and these these people can be uh uh saved i i, I don't know but it's just you know could you imagine ugh, you know i think that's part of why it's gripping the the world too i mean everybody envisioning if you ever want to think about uh claustrophobia and such i mean just uh, imagining being in that uh, circumstance is, is just uh, gets, sends chills through the spine all right, oh, let's see. I'll get to my guest pretty quickly here, but I'm going to talk first. Maybe just something to kick a, a little away from the submarine issue. Talk about people who live in comfort. And then that would be our prime minister, you know, the king of the $6,000 a night hotel room during the Queen's funeral. Well, he hasn't learned from it. Or well, maybe it doesn't matter. He seems to be as popular as ever. So what should he learn about it? But I guess there was a, a two-day trip to an anti-poverty summit. There, there's the irony is just, just drips from these guys. And on anti-poverty summit in New York City, Prime Minister went there because it's very important because he he really knows about ground level poverty, I tell you. And they rang up $61,000 in hotel bills in two days. Justin Trudeau and his little entourage, well, obviously not little, to tell everybody about how to battle poverty, managed to run up $61,000, just hotel bills. We're not talking about the rest of the bills for his travel and everything else. He's completely indifferent. He really is. You know, he's, he's in another world. But again, his, his support numbers seem as high as ever. So I, I don't know what it takes. I mean, I don't expect the prime minister to travel somewhere and stay in a super eight. I understand that. But I mean, do they have even a little, I'm certain over the course of two days, they could have come in at a little less than $61,000 in hotel bills for really, what was it? Him just showing up to give a 20 minute speech at one point or something. This is ridiculous. These stories keep coming up between him and, and the, our governor general and the rest of them in that world of Ottawa. I, I don't know. They're, they're, they're just outside of reality. Okay. Let's get on and talk to Colin Craig of secondstreet.org. He's been on before and there's some, some new stuff, a couple of items on the healthcare file we can talk about. Hey, Colin, how you doing? Good. How are you, Corey? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Yes. Just uh, running through all the things, you know, I rant, I rave, I let the veins get going on my head, but it, it's actually, uh, I'm quite happy in my own little way. <laughs> well, you got a lot to work with these days. There's a lot happening in the news, isn't there? Oh boy! I, I mean, I, I'd almost have to expand the, the length of the show, but it would uh, then it would be too much for me. Um, I, I guess I just wanted to. Uh, there's a couple of things you guys put out recently. I'll, I'll start briefly on one that's a little bit older because I mean it's kind of a positive and a negative story you guys got going out. That there was some progress on uh, wait times and waiting lists that actually was getting a little better. 
in healthcare. Uh, that's unusual to see these days. Can, can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, and I was just trying to pull up the numbers here so I've got them and can refer to them. But uh, everyone knows that since COVID arrived in Canada, waiting lists got worse. The backlog of pe- number of people waiting for surgeries, diagnostic scans to see a specialist, it got worse too. And so last year we launched a website called canadawaits.ca where we've been asking governments regularly for data on how many people are waiting for surgery to see a specialist, to receive a diagnostic scan and so forth. And we've been tracking that over time, asking governments periodically what their numbers are. And it's not the easiest exercise. I mean, you would think intuitively they would all want to know and have these figures at the, these figures at their fingertips, but uh, it's not always the case. And um, what we've actually found is from January of this year to May, there was a positive reduction in the number of people waiting for a diagnostic scan. It dropped by close to 300,000 cases. Uh, When it comes to surgery, there was a slight drop there, about 13,000 cases uh, in the number of people waiting. And then uh, to see a specialist, we saw an increase there. It was part of it was due to getting some information from a province that we didn't have data from before. But on the whole, we're seeing, you know, some positive signs. I think that this crisis that we have in healthcare is going to persist for a long time still, though. Yeah, well, I just want to start with at least a little bit of a positive note, you know, and, and segue into uh, your more recent uh, just released out mm-hmm. there, which is, is where you found that, because uh, I mean, one of the things if we're going to deal with waiting lists, we're going to deal with waiting times, we know we need more healthcare professionals, there's a labor shortage all over the, the place. And you found that, that almost 10,000 uh, uh, healthcare professionals are, are licensed to work down in the United States now. Yeah, and a, a big uh, asterisk beside that figure is that that's only border states. So if you think about all the states along the Canada-US border, so Washington State, Montana, North Dakota, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, and so forth, um, or Michigan rather, uh, those jurisdictions, we contacted them because they will issue licenses for nurses and doctors. And we asked for data, how many of these are Canadian? And what they were able to share with us are cases where the mailing address for these individuals uh, is a Canadian address. So it's a lowball figure because if you, let's say you uh, uh, grew up in Ontario and you moved, you're a nurse and you've been working in their system for 20 years and you moved to the United States 10 years ago. Well, you're still really, you know, a Canadian. You just happened to have moved and now your mailing address is a U.S. address. So though all those types of cases wouldn't be captured. Uh, and obviously we wouldn't have data for cases like California and Texas and Florida and other states where um, they might be seen as a desirable location for Canadians to move to. But yeah, 10,000. Um, issued by border states, a huge number coming from Ontario, which isn't too surprising given that you have a large population in Windsor and then also in the sort of St. Catharines, Niagara Falls area where they're, uh, they're close to, to uh, Buffalo and obviously Windsor's across the, the river there from Detroit. So uh, lots of uh, cases of these workers commuting. So they live in Canada, they work in the U.S., uh, and other in other cases, uh, these workers indicated to us in a survey that uh, uh, they're not working there yet, but they're planning to. So there's an opportunity here for uh, government-run hospitals. They look to fill our, our labor shortage to try and recruit some of these workers who are uh, working in the states, but then also to uh, try to prevent them from leaving. 
So that's what the government can do. The positive thing that we're seeing in Canada more and more is that governments are hiring private clinics to provide healthcare services to the public. And so there's an opportunity for these private clinics to offer these workers the types of work arrangements, whether it's uh, compensation or working conditions or the scheduling, whatever, that they're looking for that maybe the government has been too slow and inflexible and unwilling to provide to these workers. So there's an opportunity there for these private clinics to maybe re recruit some of these workers and ultimately lead to an increase in uh, healthcare staff in Canada. Yeah, good. Because that's one I wanted to ask further on it. I mean, did you find out a bit of what is driving people to decide to cross the border to work, whether it's daytime commuters or, or a full out, you know, planning on emigration, uh, it's still a bit of a pain in the butt. That's a, a fair drive. It's crossing customs every day. So, I mean, you've really got to either not like what the opportunities are on your side of the border, or they've got to be offering something very good on the, the other side to, to make it worth your while to do this. Yeah. So in, in one of the States, we were able to get uh, really good data for contact information for these workers. And that was Michigan. We were able to get actually get email addresses for the nurses. And so we emailed them a survey and we said, ask them a number of questions, one of which is, why did you decide to work in the US? And intuitively, I think a lot of people would think, okay, well, they're going across for money. Um, and that is true in some of the cases, but the number one reason was actually availability of work. And a lot of nurses told us that they were offered part-time roles in Canada. They didn't want that. They didn't want to have a part-time job where they would constantly have to be taking extra shifts and not knowing when those shifts are in order to raise their income to a full-time level. So what they uh, did was they just decided, well, I'll go work in Detroit because they're offering me a full-time job there. I get benefits. There's maybe some other perks in that one. In one case, someone told us they didn't have to pay for parking, you know, so there's uh, things like that, all kinds of reasons why these workers were deciding on this, the, the U.S. Uh, the, in that survey, they told us the second most common reason was compensation. But then the third was working conditions. So the majority of these nurses decided to work in the U.S. It wasn't because of money. It was actually because of working conditions and the availability of work. So those are things that governments can uh, work to address without having to open up the purse strings. Uh, so, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, I think, things that governments could learn from this, but one of which is it's a big opportunity to try and sit down and recruit some of these workers. Yeah, well, unfortunately, a lot of political football always gets gets played about this. We saw it in the Alberta election recently with health professionals saying they were going to leave the province if the election didn't go this way or that way or unions threatening. But they talked mostly of saying they were going to leave on a lateral basis, perhaps they'd go to another province to work. But you know, the, the, the problems seem to be the same in every province when it comes to some challenges with healthcare. So I, I guess, you know, the, we, we should be looking at what's drawing people to the south rather than to what's on the east and west of our provinces. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And, you know, in the, the case of uh, surveying nurses, they told us, uh, some of them said the problem is the union. They don't want to work in an environment where the union is defending people that are underperforming and not working hard. But that's what unions often do. And so... That was a concern that was raised. Others raised the point that they're working in Detroit. They've been working there for years, maybe 10, 20 years, whatever. They've got all this experience. They're good at their jobs. And if they come back to Canada uh, and work in a government-run hospital where it's a unionized environment, well, they're suddenly at the bottom of the seniority list. So that is a concern. I mean, if, if you've been in your career for 20 years, do you want to you know, go and work in an environment where you're kind of thought of as a rookie? I, I don't think a lot of people would want to do that. So 
that is a, a concern where I think maybe the unions have to be a little bit flexible. And, you know, if, if we're all, if we're all focused on putting patients first, which is what the healthcare system should be all about, then uh, yeah, maybe the unions need to think about how they could be a bit flexible to make sure that there are enough workers. Um, but again, that's public system. In the private sector, typically these clinics, they're not unionized. Uh, they're a lot flatter in terms of the hierarchy. So if you are coming in as a nurse and you want to negotiate maybe something in particular to that works with your schedule, or your lifestyle, whatever, uh, it's probably a lot easier to negotiate with your supervisor or whoever and get that approved rather than going through the big government bureaucratic structure to get something addressed. So um, that's obviously more, more common in the U.S. is that they have more of these private clinics and private hospitals and there's more flexibility there. So that, that might be something that we might want to learn from, uh, from how they do it. So you had mentioned, though, that more private uh, clinics have been opening up in Canada and, and providing those options for healthcare workers and, and patients. Uh, we, we, we hear about that, but I mean, it's often a big battle. And I mean, in BC, the, the courts are shutting down some clinics. Uh, are, you know, does that clash with the Health Act or not? Well, there, there's two issues. The first issue is uh, governments hiring a private clinic to provide services to patients in the public system. So let's say that, heaven forbid, Corey, you, uh, uh, you require hip surgery and the Alberta government might say, okay, Corey, uh, you know, you're on X month waiting list or whatever. And when it's your turn, you can either get your, your hip done at uh, a government hospital or they send you off to a private clinic. If you go to the private clinic, you go in, they do the surgery. Uh, when it comes time to leave, you're not given the bill. The government's paying for it just as if you were having that done in a, a government run hospital. So there's no real difference to the patient. It's the same. The, the private clinics have to meet the same standard of care and so forth. It just means that, uh, you know, someone is employed by someone differently than what happens right now. So that's the one approach. Governments have been embracing that uh, across the country, uh, even in British Columbia, where they take a very abrasive relationship uh, with the private sector and healthcare under the current uh, government there. Uh, they even were working with private clinics to reduce their backlogs. So uh, we've been seeing that more and more. Ontario has really aggressively uh, started to go in this direction. They've Premier Ford there has mused about upwards of half of elective surgeries being done by private clinics in the, the years ahead. So they really uh, taken uh, embrace this this idea, and it it actually works. It, it worked quite well in in Saskatchewan. They were able to reduce their wait times. Uh, and multiple studies found that the, the costs were actually lower, too, because the private sector is just more efficient or, or often can be, I should say. So that's the one approach when it comes to the government hiring private clinics to provide services to the public. The other option is, let's say, uh, Corey, you don't want to wait X number of months to get your, your hip or your knee done. And you want to just pay for it somewhere and get it done quicker. Well, this is the contentious issue where there's all kinds of, uh, uh, it, it can be a mess in this country to be blunt. So what happened recently with the Supreme Court is they refused to hear a case that would have potentially brought that right to patients in British Columbia and potentially across the nation would be to allow people the right to use the public system or pay for something at a private clinic. Uh, that's what Quebecers have right now. The Supreme Court gave Quebecers that right in 2005 because the waiting, was, were, waiting lists were so long. 
And so what was happening recently was British Columbia was essentially a, a private clinic there was trying to get that right to patients across the country and, and obviously in British Columbia. And the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. So now the Supreme Court has created two-tier healthcare in Canada where Quebec patients have more rights when it comes to healthcare than everyone else in the rest of the country. Well, and here's some of the irony of the whole thing too, that in, in BC where they've been a little more jealous and, and trying to stop uh, attempted reforms, uh, we, we heard the story recently with some BC cancer patients who were actually being sent to the United States to get treatment because they couldn't keep up with things in BC. And ironically, I wouldn't be surprised if they had some Canadian nurses or doctors were the ones actually treating them on that side of the border. Yeah, it's there's all kinds of irony in this, and yeah, you're right. They're they're sending patients to uh, to BC uh, for cancer in Ontario. Actually, some patients are going across the border to Quebec because they can pay for uh, private procedures there. So you've got cancer patients in Ontario going to a Quebec private uh, health facility and paying for cancer treatment. And this is where it gets really weird with our rules. Right now, you can go to another province and pay for private surgeries. You cannot pay in Alberta. I can't either as an Alberta patient. As a Manitoban, you couldn't pay in Manitoba. You could go and pay in Saskatchewan. So it's just, it makes no sense at all, especially when governments are always lecturing us about reducing our carbon footprint. They won't let us pay for health procedures locally, but we can go to another province and pay. So as one example, we actually just did a video on this. And we've got it on our social media pages if anyone wants to see it. Someone in Calgary will often go to, say, Vancouver to pay for hip surgery, while a Vancouverite will go to Calgary to pay for hip surgery. It makes no sense to force people to leave their, their local community where they can um, uh, get this done for a lower cost because uh, if you don't have to pay the extra cost for travel and accommodations and whatever then you save money that way. You could recover, if you could do it locally, you could recover with your family around you and support systems. Uh, and then there's, uh, you know, just ultimately having more choice and being able to do it locally. So th there's lots of benefits of it, but uh, we just, we're stuck in this 1970s kind of socialist mindset where we really restrict the options that uh, Canadians have and it hurts the environment, hurts patients. It's, it's just all around not a good, not, not a good approach. Well, it does sound like sort of kicking and screaming reality is kind of starting to set in, though, and, and, and that's good, and some reforms might might come along yet. Um, so, I mean, in, in closing, uh, where, where can we find more information about this, the, the full uh, release from you guys and, and some of your other healthcare work? Because you got some great videos and things up there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we're on uh, YouTube, Facebook, to search for secondstreet.org on there. You'll find us. Uh, our website, obviously, is secondstreet.org. Uh, we're on Twitter as well and Instagram and uh, the usual social media platforms and people can, can see what we're up to and read our reports and see all the, the evidence that we gather and, and uh, hopefully it helps inform their, their, uh, what they know about healthcare in this country and other topics. Well, thanks, Colin, uh, for joining me again today. And, and yeah, just always offering some good common sense and, you know, stats-based stuff on, on this healthcare issue. Because as I said, it's always a, a top issue with Canadians in every election, yet when it comes time to talk about changing anything, then everybody turtles up. So we really need to have these discussions to make people understand that re reform isn't necessarily a bad thing. We need it. This The healthcare system is collapsing in this country. It's been uh, in a crisis situation for a long time. And unless we have the courage to start reforming things, it's going to it's going to stay in rough shape. And, you know, heaven forbid any of us actually need the system because uh, might not be there. Oh, and that's uh, 
could have the most tragic events. All right. Well, thanks, Colin. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon down the road. Sounds good. Thanks again, Corey. Thank you. So yeah, I was calling Craig of secondstreet.org. Yeah, and yeah, the time goes fast because it's, it's such a big issue and there, there's so much to cover. But I mean, there's some, uh, you know, things to, to speak of on that. On that, I'm, I'm just uh, trying to get to the commenter I had seen from Corey Young, for example, a uh, commenter said, public hospitals don't have enough staff, but private clinics do. Now we know why the private steals from the public system. Well, well no, actually. The private competes with the public system and the public system isn't keeping up the standard to maintain and keep their staff. So what should happen is the public system should figure out what's going wrong and should adapt. And it's not being stolen, of course. And I, I, we can't force people. Well, that's what we try to do in Canada with our health system. It's so rigid, is, is force people to do things. And, and they're going across the border to the states. See, there's the thing people have to learn. It's not just patients crossing the border now to get away from Canada's rigid system. It's the staff. And that's just going to compound the problem we have of waiting lists and, and, and problems that was already a big issue. So um, we need to examine why. Why is it superior then to work in a private environment? It doesn't mean a public one can't do so. It just, uh, they need to change things. Uh, Rob Taylor saying uh, nobody should be able to jump the line by paying for healthcare service. Uh, provincial systems contracting privately provide services as long as patients don't have to pay. Well, I don't agree, Rob. I mean, the thing is, people will pay anyways, but they'll go to Montana to do it. I, you know, I, why not? I'm okay if a guy next to me pays to get to the line first because he's paying out of pocket to subsidize me getting to the line faster. You know, if he wants to pay out of pocket, so be it. He's going to anyhow. So if it's speeding it up for everybody else while we're at it, and it's keeping more healthcare professionals here, then why not? As long as we still have full coverage for everybody else we got to set aside the envy because it doesn't matter if we're all equally miserable, we're still miserable. And we, we've got to look at the, 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 just try to get the best outcomes we can. And some of our stubbornness with this is, is, is uh, holding it back. And something that we keep saying is, is so, so important. But as I said, we're always fearful when people actually talk about reforming it though. And now we're losing the professionals. That's a different, that's why I wanted to talk to Colin about it. We've heard about, uh, you know, healthcare tourism and people leaving to get treatment and things uh, for a long time, but we haven't heard so much about Canadian workers leaving our system to go to work down there. And that's problematic. I mean, we can't just spring up more healthcare workers out of the ground like daisies. They're difficult to find and train and get into place. So let's look at why we're losing them and see how we can change our system to make it better. Um, let's see here what else we got going on. Uh, you know, getting back to the, the, the residential school and, and, the, and the burials, uh, you know, some, some other people saying that there's, there's nothing there, uh, there's nothing to be found if we excavate and things like that. I don't know. You know, that's most of what I'm saying when it comes to that, is we don't know. We have to excavate to find out. I'm not sitting here to say that there's no human remains at the Kamloops site. None have been found yet, but the other thing is nobody's looked. And this is really starting to make some of us scratch our heads. I mean, come on, but why haven't you followed through? This is huge. We, we aren't even uh, trying to look a little further yet. I, I, we should be pretty concerned. This is serious stuff. Um, yeah, Rob Taylor also saying, bust the government unions and fix the system. Yeah, I, I, the unions are... Um, I mean, you see, unions are right. 
You know, organized labor is a right. Collective bargaining is a right. So we can't get rid of them. But we should have some means to allow staff to avoid them. Make the unions compete as well. And the way to do that is to have more, yeah, private non-union options to compete for those employees and staff. Those who don't want to deal with the union can choose those. And if there's too many people, as far as the union is concerned, going to the alternative uh, facilities to work, well, the unions are going to have to learn how to keep their own members around, won't they? Uh, you know, we monopolies. That, that, that's, that's what it always comes down to, is monopolies. When there's a monopoly, we all lose. The consumer always loses. In this case, it's a healthcare consumer. We still all lose if there's only one provider. Um, a couple of things. Okay, I want to clarify a little more on the Kamloops thing because I see a couple of commenters too. So I've, seen, I've had a lot of this discussion on social media about that with Kamloops and, and the uh, GPR. And one was saying you'll always find, bo you'll find bones in a graveyard and uh, James saying uh, we're, we're not allowed to talk about the unmarked graves. Yes, okay. See, we got two issues going on, two. And uh, one of the issues is that People think that this was a known graveyard. It wasn't, okay? A bunch of the, what happened once these GPR anomalies were found in Kamloops, they started doing GPR at known cemeteries all over the place, all across Western Canada, and found more anomalies in known graveyards. So yes, they went to a graveyard and they identified graves. And they were unmarked because yes, if you go to even, if I know because I go regularly through it, the Stony Reserve in, in out uh, towards Banff, for example, their cemetery is all full of nothing but wooden crosses. Even right now, they're going to rot away and they're going to disappear. But Kamloops was different. Kamloops was never a known cemetery. It was a septic field. It was an apple orchard. But it wasn't known as a cemetery. That's a little different. This was supposedly a place where the priests, after they would molest and kill children, these are the stories. These are the stories. And they would get the, then they'd wake other children up in the night and make them go out with shovels and bury them in the apple orchard. And uh, to be honest, the stories sound pretty excessive. Who knows? The world's been known to be a pretty sick place, so we can't discount anything. I mean, we've seen some horrible, horrible things committed uh, by humans against humans many times in history. So I, I won't say it's impossible, but again, it tells us that we have to get in there and start looking around, find out just what happened. Nobody wants to talk about it. Uh, well, no, lots of us want to talk about it. And that's part of the problem, right? And then other government's talking about making it a crime to talk about it. Well, I guess I'll be charged because, you know, I won't shut up about something that uh, important. Uh, let's see. Uh, we'll turn the page a little bit more here. We can talk a little more about uh, federal government hypocrisy. Speaking again, like I talked about Trudeau and his latest massive hotel bill to, to go and virtue signal down in New York because he has such an understanding of the causes of poverty. Uh, our governor general, you know, the one who spent, I think, what it was, ninety thousand on a day trip and stuff like that. Uh, she uh, burned through twenty-five thousand liters of jet fuel to give a climate change speech in Finland. Yes, so again, just her and her entourage. You know, they can't zoom in. The rest of us were expected to for years, uh, but uh, twenty-five thousand liters of fuel, one trip. For somebody who, again, she, she's appointed a governor general. we got to remember, governor generals are ribbon cutter guys. They, they, they're they trained for anything all that special. They're, they're an aristocrat. They're a symbol. So it's really not that essential that we need this person in this position to fly around the world and lecture people on climate change. 
Where's her expertise on climate change? What the hell does she know about climate change? She doesn't, but she loves jet setting. She loves flying around. She loves burning that fuel, which is burning through your tax dollars. And uh, it's just an insult to those of us as we got a second carbon tax coming up on us pretty soon. Because the first one just wasn't enough. And uh, she's just jet-setting around the world. I mean, she's, apparently she's not as uh, vile a personality as Trudeau's first choice of uh, governor generals were. You know, she went out and disgraced that last one. Uh, this one's just uh, spinning her way out, but she's not abusing the staff as much. In fact, she's probably treating them to, to caviar, I guess, uh, while they fly around together. Uh, speaking ag again of the, the Senate, and speaking of, well, speaking of uh, unaccountable government, yeah, you know, and, and Tim Burns saying that position should be eliminated. I agree. It should, we should be a republic. We don't need the Queen's representative, well, no, the King's representative uh, sitting over us any longer. But uh, that would take constitutional reform, which is virtually impossible in this country. So one step at a time. Um, but we should defund it. You know, we don't have to uh, 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 give her a big giant budget any longer. She can have her role. I bet you for the paltry wage of a hundred thousand a year in expenses, you know, somebody would take that job and probably do a good job with it. But, uh, you know, okay, let's see here. Actually. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder there from Chris Gibson saying, uh, what's my opinion on the recent federal by-elections? And, um, that's, uh, yeah. So there were four by-elections held. Uh, they were in Manitoba and I think Ontario, one in Quebec, maybe I, I can't remember exactly where I know there were two in Manitoba. Um, Maxime Bernier was trying to make his mark and, and, uh, and show himself as being a viable candidate. Unfortunately, he came in, at least unfortunately for him, uh, with even you know a fewer percentage than the PPC candidate did uh, in the general election last time around in that riding in Winnipeg. Uh, so, and he was nowhere even close to winning. So it doesn't bode very well for the PPC, I think, in, in building an option, but we'll see. Um, <clears throat> the other distressing part is the needle hasn't moved a bit. I mean... Two liberal seats, two conservative seats got returns of two liberal seats, two conservative seats. So all of the scandals, all of the uh, cover-ups, all of the crap going on with Trudeau, his, his fake uh, position of special rapporteur, and, and then all of the, the games being played, and it doesn't seem to have made a single bit of difference. People are going to vote one way, and they're going to vote the other, which means basically if um, we... Uh, or had another election today, we'd probably pretty much have the same bunch in there again. So it gets distressing because I don't know what on earth it takes. What does it take to get rid of Justin Trudeau's government? It's not healthy for a country to be stuck um, that uh, badly on a government that well, is performing so badly. Um, yeah, we'll see. But those by-elections, well, they, they didn't give us a lot to read into the tea leaves. We have one more now that just opened up in Alberta. That's in Calgary Heritage, uh, Shuv Majumdar. He's been on the show a couple of times. He's running in it for the Conservatives. And uh, <clears throat> it's a very, very safe seat. It's Calgary Heritage. So there's not many, not much we can read into the tea leaves with what's going to happen with that one. The Conservatives are going to win it handily. So, uh, yeah, it gets difficult to, to break the status quo around here. Where's going next with... Uh, yeah, Trudeau's former pop, top public servant is now a senator. You know, there's, there's that great plum roll you get is thrown out into the, the Senate and uh, where you could sit and collect a giant salary and do very little and uh, uh, collect, you know, get a nice pension eventually. And uh, Ian Sugar's the name, and he's uh, warning the way the Senate's structured can give senators a feeling they have more power than they have a right to. 
He's saying that uh, the Senate shouldn't be opposing the government. Now, see, he, this is cutting through some of the BS of Trudeau. When he's changed, one of his reforms he claimed to have been doing when he came in was saying, we're going to end the partisanship in the Senate, and they're no longer liberal senators. They are independent senators. I'll just appoint them, but they'll be independent. No, they aren't. Listen to this clown. Independent? That's not independent at all. In fact, he's chiding the other senators for their daring to be independent. So no, that's not independent senators whatsoever. End the facade. At least let them wear their partisan colors again, guys. I mean, come on. You know, just, just feeding us the BS on these things is it's just something else. At least I, I'll give it to him in the sense of him being honest about it a little bit. Um, was it Dennis? Uh, they're saying Alberta will have to leave Canada to save Canada. Well, it's something I've said for a while is we need a catalyst. We need something to blow things up, whether it's Alberta, whether it's Quebec, whether it's whatever it is, but our system's broken and our status quo is stuck, whether it's trying to fix things like the Senate, trying to fix things like the Governor General. All of these require constitutional reforms. And as we've seen, Meech Lake, Charlottetown, historically, whenever we try to change the Constitution, unfortunately, we seem to fail. So I think we need, uh, yes, we need a province to get either right on the brink of or to actually vote to leave this country. And I can't see what else will manage to uh, shift the needle on things. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe something will change from within. All right. Let's see. Well, all I can say, too, then as I start to wrap things up, we're still keeping an eye on the news. Watch the site if we find out anything else on the that horror story of those poor poor souls stuck on that uh, uh, submersible somewhere out there. Let's hope that, uh, well, you know, a miracle happens and they're found alive. I know it's hard to find sympathy sometimes for uh, tourists who've spent so much money to go into something so dangerous, but all the same, you don't wish uh, anything as horrific as, as dying out in sea like that on them. Uh, there'll be plenty more to report on next week, guys, and uh, lots of ranting to come. So thanks for tuning in with us today, and we will see you all next week at this time. Here's an update on commodity prices in Lethbridge for today. Cash barley is up $3 at 423 Feed wheat increased $2 at 421 and corn moved higher $5 at 424 per metric ton. In the milling wheat markets, July Minneapolis futures jumped 19 and 3 quarter cents to 868 and 3 quarters, with local hard red spring bid for July movement at 1075 per bushel. Looking at canola, nearby futures are lower a dollar at 744.50 per ton, with delivered values for June movement at 1710 per bushel. And in the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are holding at 33.5 cents per pound, and yellow peas are trading at 1125 per bushel. In the cattle markets, August live cattle slipped 12.5 cents to 177 per hundredweight. For more information on pricing, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Matt Musicum at Marketplace Commodities. Accurate, real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. To become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.